Welcome back to A Drop in the Bucket, a podcast about mental health that aims to help people understand themselves and others better by sharing stories of what people struggle with, how they respond to these things, and what helps them to take care of themselves and enjoy life. Over the summer, we're doing a few one-off specials to bridge the gap to Series 2. Welcome to the second of these, which is all about the Enneagram. Hi everybody, welcome to our special bonus episode this week. Hi guys. This week, we're going to talk a bit about the Enneagram. So a few years ago, I was introduced to something called the Enneagram, and I instantly loved it. And last year, our church hosted an introduction workshop, and we both went along, and now Sarah is hooked as well. I love it. It has really helped us to understand ourselves and our relationships better, so we wanted to share a little bit about it with all of you. So we are extremely excited to have with us today Hannah and Monica, who are both Enneagram teachers and work together under their business Empowered Enneagram. So welcome both of you to the podcast. Hi, We're so glad to thanks be for here. having us. Yeah. Now, we could talk about the Enneagram for hours, and lots of people have done, so we'll put some other great resources in the show notes. But can you start by telling us, in a nutshell, a bit about what the Enneagram is and what you guys like about it so much? Well, the Enneagram is a self-growth model. Um, It's a system that you use to identify patterns in your own personality, Um, both the things that are really beautiful about you and your gifts to the world, and also the things that uh, really get in your way, um, that get in your way of having the kind of love that you want or being the kind of person that you want to be. And my favorite thing about this personality system in particular is that it provides a growth path for you of what is, you know, what are the things that you need to do to be your best self or to reach a higher version of yourself. I always felt like when I had personality tests in the past, like I would get my personality and I'd be like, okay, cool, great. Now what? Um, And it was just kind of, what do do I do now? And so the Enneagram really provides that answer of what do I do now? And it's been incredibly helpful for me in my personal life, which has had a huge impact on all the other aspects of my life um, as far as like my career and Um, how I spend my time. So it's been an incredibly valuable resource for me. I mean, Hannah really nails it. It, It's really like, it's such a multifaceted system, which is what I love about it. A lot of other personality typing systems or systems that are utilized for personal growth, they really don't mirror the complexity of the inner experience of being human. But the Enneagram really does that. There's so many layers. There's so many dimensions. There's so many ways in which the Enneagram is kind of like this living, breathing being that it really parallels just what it's like to be a human. And so, and I, and I love about it also just that instead of kind of being like, here's your box, it says, here's your box and here's how to get out of it should you choose to. And really the work of the Enneagram is about liberating yourself from these coping skills that we develop to deal with life instead of just being like, these are your coping skills, end of story. Yeah, I absolutely love, I love what you said, Hannah, about identifying your strengths, but also the things that get in your way. And I think that that's a lovely way of looking at it rather than looking at it in terms of like weaknesses or things that are wrong with you. It's just, you know, there's two sides to everything. And the idea that you can't try to be a different number, but you can try to be a better version of whatever number you are. I think is really, it is really freeing. It says there's work there for you to do, but you don't need to change the core of who you are. 
And I love that even if you are a particular number, that doesn't mean that you are the same as the other people who are that number as well. I think, you know, it because it's not about, okay, so you're, so I'm a four. So like, therefore I have all of these personality traits. It's more about my core motivation and who I am. And actually I can find real kindred spirits, people who are motivated by the same things and understand you in the same way, but that actually you can be really different. Yeah. There's like this community that's there of like, oh, I'm not alone. Like other people experience this too. And, um, but you also are a unique individual, even though you share the personality with another person. Yeah. So when I first discovered the Enneagram, I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing people of different types and, uh, started with one and thought, yes, this is interesting. And then I listened to somebody who was a two and I'm a two and I was on the bus on the way to London. I was sat in the corner of this bus just in tears because hearing somebody else, it was like they were inside, I would say inside my head, but it was more like they were inside my soul, like really describing what it was like to feel like me. And I was, that's, you know, I knew that I was a two at that point and it was just so special. And I've, I've never had that from any other kind of personality tests that I've ever seen. So anyway, we could talk about how amazing it is all day, but how has the Enneagram helped you guys in terms of your mental and emotional wellbeing? Well, I'll answer that first, just because I'm going to piggyback a little bit on uh, what you just shared about the gift of being seen in that way right? It's, it's a really vulnerable, raw experience for someone to see pieces of you that have probably been implicit most of your life. And even pieces of you that maybe you try to hide. Um, I know for me, that was definitely part of my experience coming into myself using the Enneagram was that there were these parts of myself, particularly like uh, for I'm a type two also. And so like the, the give to get piece or the, the idea that my motivations for who I am and how I show up in the world aren't always 100% motivated by altruism because I'm not some like saint robot. Right. And so this like coming into myself and allowing myself to be seen, not in the way that I wish to portray myself, but as I actually am, has been both terrifying and very uncomfortable, but also really liberating because it's really helped me to loosen my grip on this narrative that I have to be some kind of robot saint, right? Like that I have to be this kind of Mother Teresa figure for everybody else in my life and give it, it's given me permission, knowing that about myself and doing the active work of the Enneagram has given me permission to learn how to take care of myself, to challenge the narrative that like self-care is selfish and to really look at the ways in which I show up in relationships as, you know, with a critical lens, but also with compassion. And so the Enneagram has like kind of for me created this framework where I can like depersonalize stuff where pieces of, uh, of me that I might feel not so great about become like, oh, well, that's my ineotype. It's my fixation, right? Not to excuse my responsibility, but to like allow me to just kind of separate like my soul, who I am as a person is not this coping skill, right? I like to think about our fixation as like a way that we have survived our lives. And so for me, when I'm faced with that 
vulnerable feeling of being seen and it's a piece of me that I don't particularly enjoy, I can be like, oh, okay, that's my fixation showing up. Cool. Good to know. I can have compassion for the fact that I've developed this pattern to survive my life. And it helps me have compassion for other people too, right? Like um, if I'm having a challenging interaction with someone and whether I know their type or not, it just helps me remember like, oh, they have a way that they have survived their life too. And their way is triggering my way. And we're having that kind of interaction right now, but I can have compassion for the fact that they're doing what they need to do to survive their world in this moment. Yeah, I think that's so key that the more you learn about yourself and like Sarah said, you find kindred spirits elsewhere and you realize how similar you are to other people, you equally learn how different you are to other people. You really do assume that other people think the way that you do and see the world the way that you do until you find out otherwise. And then when that opens your eyes, you can't help but have compassion for another person because you're no longer expecting them to be another you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, one of our favorite pieces of feedback that we get when we teach the Enneagram is that people say they feel compassion for all the nine types. And I think that's beautiful. I think our world needs more of that. And I, you know, I, it took me a really long time to find my type. I, I first discovered the Enneagram when I was like 19 years old and a friend of mine in college was really into it. And he gifted me the wisdom of the Enneagram uh, by Riso Hudson. And I dove into it and I read about all of the types and I didn't resonate with any of the types right away, but it blew my mind still because I thought, whoa, you mean that, like, I, I remember reading two and I remember thinking, you mean it's not a good thing for them to be really like giving all of the time and self-sacrificing? Like, like there's just apparently a story that was in my head that I was telling myself was a good thing and that I, I needed to be that way. And so to have this like resource saying, no, that's actually harmful to you to always be that way. Um, it really, you know, that allowed me to take a look at my own life and what I was doing. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe the way that I'm doing things um, isn't necessarily serving me. So that idea by itself was tremendous. And so I kept exploring the different types and I call it trying on types. Like at one point I thought I was like, maybe, maybe I'm a nine, maybe I'm a two, uh, maybe I'm a three. And so when I tried on those types, I also tried on the work of that type and whatever their work was, what resonated with me ended up being things that were very very relevant to my self-preservation for work. Like the best example I can think of is for type three, like really examining my relationship with working too much. I always thought that was a good thing and people telling me to kind of slow down or wondering if I was okay, or if I could handle all of it. I was always like, of course I can handle it. Like, And, and learning about being a self-preservation for, and that, that I actually need to take a step back a lot of that and then I need to tune in to what I actually need and and stop enduring hardship and stop enduring suffering um, when I don't need to so I think that that's um, that's sort of my journey of how <laughs> how I came to self-preservation for um, and I also want to say to everyone listening that it's okay if you don't have your type right and it's okay if you don't know what your type is right away that just reading practicing self-reflection and like reading about all the types and thinking like applying it to yourself and like what do I struggle with and what 
you know, what, what is something that I, that's really gotten in my way? Like, what are the things I really value about myself? And just kind of having that conversation is self-growth all on its own, even if you don't know your type. You were quite similar to Hannah, actually, weren't you? In that they'd asked us to, to look through descriptions of types before we came along to this day and to then say what we thought we were. And then she went into explore it in a lot more detail. And Sarah equally had, had picked out lots of different ones that she thought, oh, maybe I'm a bit of that, maybe I'm a bit of that. And it was only when, yeah, she was kind of questioning, doing that kind of narrative interviewing that Sarah ended up being like, oh, no, 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 yeah, 100% of four. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. I think that it's, it seems like there are certain types who seem to know their type a bit quicker and then other types that seem to take a longer journey there. I think there's also, like you said, Monica, about there was something for me about having permission to be a four as in that some of the bits of myself that maybe I didn't love or wasn't very proud of um in terms of being quite emotional and that kind of wallowing and going quite deep into things I thought was something that I needed to change about myself and be ashamed of and actually in her seeing me and going this is who you are and that's okay. And there's still work to be done in how I cope with life. But there was something so freeing in going, no, that is just who I am. And that's okay. And being allowed to be proud of it, I think, has been quite a big thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think that the process of finding your type, there is so much richness in that. There's so much to be um, uncovered and explored and excavated in the process of finding your type. And it's so funny, like, I noticed that, you know, Hannah and I talk a lot about when we found our type, people always ask us that, like, tell us your, your journey with finding your type. And it's interesting, there's stories that we have told over and over and over again. But depending on where we are in our excavation, we always focus on different elements of the story. So I, I, I love that. And I think that the process of being witnessed in telling that story changes the story in different mm. ways. And I kind of, I hear that in what Sarah's saying. And um, it's a really, it's a really beautiful journey. Yeah. So if people aren't familiar with the Enneagram, they're probably going to be a bit confused at this point and thinking, oh, what, what are these numbers and what are some of the things they're talking about? But don't worry, me and Sarah, as all of our listeners know, can talk a lot, but we are going to shut up for a little while um, and let Hannah and Monica take us through all of the different types and think a little bit about what might add to people's stress buckets and take stress out of those buckets, um, what some really good self-care strategies might be for these different numbers, um, because they are the experts in this and we're really excited to hear what they've got to say so guys take it away great so there's nine Enneagram types and Monica and I like to teach that your personality type is a coping mechanism it's the way that you walk through life to survive your own life and we're all doing that in nine distinct perspectives in the world in kind of nine distinct ways so we'll start with type one and type one is a person who, who really needs to get things right. They sort of have this, this filter that they're viewing life through where they can see you know, what, what isn't right or what isn't perfect. And so because of that, this character kind of develops of this person who is very structured, likes to follow the rules, 
And those rules might not be your rules. It might not be the government's rules or anyone's rules. It's really their own internal rules and what they, what they think is the right thing to do. This is a type that has a lot of morality and a lot of um, intention that goes into, did they say the right thing? Did they do the right thing? And so some of the things that can stress this type out, I think that making mistakes is probably one of the biggest stressors for type one, because Type ones are carrying around a message in themselves that they are a mistake, that they as like a, as a whole person, that they're not good and that they're a mistake. And so when it, when a mistake actually happens, it's like this giant, like it feels like a giant validation of that really, really big internal fear. Um, and a lot of, a lot of shame, a lot of shame can come up for them when they make a mistake and they tend to be really, really hard on themselves when they do. Ones are known for having a very critical, really critical perspective. And that can be critical of others, critical of systems or critical, you know, being critical of the way things are done. But mostly it's a lot of self-criticism. Um, and I shouldn't have done this. I should have done this. And, and there's this very like strong internal dialogue that kind of gets repeated around what they should and shouldn't have done. Um, so this is the ones are the home of self-criticism and they can really, really struggle with that. So making mistakes, um, being in situations where there's not, things aren't going by procedure or it's not going to plan. Ones can uh, while ones can be flexible and they can kind of go with the flow, it doesn't tend to be their natural order of things. Like they want things to kind of go as planned and be, and be a little more orderly. And because of that, like sometimes when they actually do let loose or they're, you know, they go to a party and they have a beer and they're just like hanging out. Um, a lot of times ones after that, this like self-criticism can pop up in a big way. It says like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or I let myself get too loose. Um, and so that, oddly enough, relaxing and having fun can be a source of stress for ones after the fact, because they tend to kind of beat themselves up for it. And I think also a really big thing for ones is if they are viewed as not being good, or if someone else views them as being morally corrupt in some way. Um, and I think that that goes along with the fear of making mistakes, but it's, it's, they're trying, they're putting so much energy and effort into being good into following this order um, that they think they should be following. And they also think everyone else should be following that when that gets disrupted somehow, whether it's true or not, they just really take it to heart. And it's a really hard thing. What would you add to that? Yeah. So one thing that I think is important just to say about ones in general is their name. So they're, they're called the reformer or the perfectionist. And they're called that because they have a keen eye for being able to point out what just what isn't quite right. You know, the one is going to walk into your home and notice that picture that isn't quite straight on your wall, right? They've got this kind of keen eye for detail about just what's not right. And as far as like being able to take care of themselves or some antidotes to the pieces of stress, I would say that self-compassion is so huge for ones developing a way to hold the parts of themselves that they, that aren't perfect or aren't ex, you know, acceptable according to their kind of universal idea of what is acceptable, but being able to hold themselves in compassion for that and developing a counter voice 
to that really harsh critic. A lot of ones live with this kind of judge inside of them that's really loud and the one judge inside can be really nasty. So it's a good practice for ones to develop a counter voice to that. And that counter voice is sometimes found in being silly and kind of letting themselves indulge in something, even if they didn't quote unquote earn it. Ones can be really hard on themselves and get really rigid with themselves about like, I have to eat this way and I have to work out and I have to, you know, do these things or else I'm not quote unquote good. Um, so the, the leaning into the play, the indulgence, the like being silly just to be silly uh, is really, really, really good medicine for ones. And, and in that following that thread about kind of play and being silly, I would also say developing a sense of curiosity. Curiosity really helps us tap into wonder and a sense of thinking about life as more of an experiment rather than I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then this will happen. And, and so getting comfortable with some of that curiosity, um, asking what if questions um, is really good for ones. I like to think about when we're teaching one of our workshops we teach is called Enneagram for Healers. And we do this activity that's kind of geared towards ones. Um, maybe some of you know it called Meta Meditation which is a loving kindness meditation where you kind of send loving kindness out from your heart to the world. And then you put it back. I like to think about that as part of a self self-compassion development practice. Um, for ones, it doesn't exactly have to look like that, but I find that ones really like that meditation usually. Yeah. That's like the two biggest takeaways for type one or self-care tips is developing self-compassion and being able to lean into silliness and play. And I think it's important to know when, with these tips, if you don't know your type, the tips that we give are gonna be hard if it's your type. They're gonna sound a little like, oh, that doesn't sound like self-care to me, or like, oh, like, I don't wanna do that. And for ones, this idea of just like letting go of the rules and letting go of what you're supposed to be doing um, and I mean, like literally let go of it, like don't do all the tasks that you're supposed to do um, at the time frame that you plan to do them and just like play or do something fun. And um, that's going to seem very hard for a type one. Maybe like, no, I need to get everything done first. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think I have quite a strong one wing. And I think if other people just looked at descriptions and then had to type me, most people I know would, would say that I was a one. <laughs> I was just out here going, wow, Becca's one wing is really strong. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's good to, it's good to pay attention to like, that's one thing I like about going through all the types is that you get to see like these elements of yourself in, in the other ones, right. As you, as you talk about it and yeah, the, the one, one, the, like any kind of element of one is like, oh, it's so obvious. <laughs> like, cause it's such a, you know, it's such a strong, strong type. So twos, type two is called the helper and uh, type two is in what we would call the heart or the feeling triad. So they are one of the types that is very in touch with their feelings. All the types are in touch with their feelings to different capacities, but for type two, they're definitely a more emotional type person and they tend to kind of have the energy of someone who's very sweet and cute and helpful 
Yes, almost. Yeah, there can be kind of a just an angelic quality to them. And they definitely tend to be people that feel warm and attractive. They're really working hard to kind of win love and relationships. They're, they're good. They're good relationship. They're definitely people, people. So one of the things that twos really struggle with as far as stress goes is disconnection. When there is a rupture in the relationship, that is really stressful for a two, especially if that rupture challenges the narrative that they are good, their intentions are good. It's really hard for twos to sit with the idea that they have done harm in some way. And twos have a very up close and personal relationship with shame. So criticism is really difficult for twos. Um, It's really hard for them to hear when they have caused harm in some capacity or done something to someone that unintentionally impacted them in a way that would suggest that it, it wasn't totally altruistic. And then the other thing that's really stressful for twos is that because they are always kind of giving to everybody else and really attuning to other people's needs, they can get overstretched really easily. And they can really overcommit to lots of different things, lots of different people. They're super social. So they can get overstretched and kind of ignore their own needs and then become resentful of that. And then there's like this anger that bubbles up about, well, wait a minute, I, I did this for you. So what's going on with this? And I, you know, how come you won't say yes to doing me this favor after I cooked you dinner, put your slippers away and did the dishes. So that can be really stressful for twos when they feel that anger and the ang- especially if the anger comes out because the anger is the evidence of the fixation, really. The anger is where the fixation becomes the most obvious. And again, that shame rises up as twos have to sit with this idea that they're not always doing things for purely altruistic reasons uh, because they're humans. What do you want to add to that, Han? Well, and the twos are doing things for other people all the time. That's why they're called the helper, the caregiver, or uh, the giver. And part of why they're doing that is because they can't give to themselves. So we always say in our trainings, like, you know, you, you might be a two if, you know, you're really thirsty and instead of getting yourself a glass of water, you start asking everyone else around the room if they want water. And you may as a two be aware that you have that need, or it might be completely unconscious. You might have no idea that you're thirsty, but all of a sudden you're asking everybody else if they want water. And so I think part of like going into the stressors and what stresses these stresses twos out, when twos are in a situation where they have to ask for their needs to be met, or they have to like even say what their needs are, both to themselves or to other people, that can be a really, a really big stress trigger for them because it's going against their personality. It's saying like their personality is telling them that they need to be of service to others. They need to give to others. And so anytime when they feel like they're not doing that, it's going to bring up a lot of stress for them. And also like for them kind of how they how they manage all of that and and what are some good tips for them to do when they are in that stressful place. 
Self-compassion is so huge for type two. Type two is in a uh, group on the Enneagram, grouped with a couple of other numbers, two, three, and four. Uh, We call that the heart triad. And all of those personality types have the core emotion of shame. And so for twos, when, when twos are in a stressful place, like Monica said, that shame, that shame, like stress gets triggered and then shame gets triggered, especially if it goes against the identity of being um, a helpful, friendly, like good person whose, whose purpose is out there to help everybody and to serve. And so if you can have some compassion for yourself and say, okay, I am a whole person. I am allowed to have needs. I can give myself permission to practice self-kindness, which might mean that tonight I need to take a bubble bath and I need to cancel that dinner date that I had with this person, or I I need to do something for myself. Self-care is so important for twos. Um, I spend so much time focusing on other people that they often get depleted and they, it's stressful to focus on themselves, but it is the number one thing that's actually going to help them. And I also would recommend if you're to do your self-care alone, don't invite anyone, don't invite your mom or your friends or like do it, do it alone because twos are so incredibly good at tuning into other people and other people's needs. And it can be a pretty unconscious thing that's happening. Like you, as a two, you might not be aware it's happening, but they're so good at that, that if there's even another person in the room or in the home or wherever you are, it can be incredibly difficult and sometimes impossible to tune, to tune into yourself and really figure out what you actually want and what you actually need. We have this thing that we say about twos where we uh, use the phrase overstretched and undernourished because twos like to think that this like stuff that they're doing is self-care. It's like, oh, I hung out with my friends. Like that is self-care. But is it nourishing, right? Like does it give you life or does it deplete you? How do you feel afterwards after you had five coffee dates in a day. I have totally done that. And it's like, I thought it was such a good idea. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the funnest day ever. But then I was really, really exhausted. Um, And actually uh, what's happening in the world right now with quarantine and stuff has been a really enlightening experience as far as like, oh, I actually do need a lot of time alone and a lot of time to kind of be by myself. So alone time, super good for twos. Moving on to type three, Type three is called the achiever, also called the chameleon. Or the performer. The performer. Yes, the performer. And type three is this type on the Enneagram that has learned to have worth by what they can achieve and what they can produce and what kind of status they can obtain. Threes tend to care about prestige or status, and they care about being really good, be actually being the best at whatever they kind of set their mind to. They're extremely hardworking, and they tend to be those people that you know that look like they're just good at everything, right? They're the star of the play, and they're the captain of the soccer team and they speak three languages, and they're an accomplished saxophone player, and they also 
sold a painting at the Met for $10,000 last month, right? Like, (laughs) these are the people you look at and you're like, when do you sleep? How are you like, how are you alive after you're doing all these things, right? So things that can be really stressful for threes are when things feel inefficient or there's a kind of a low frustration tolerance for things going their way. Um, So threes are very efficient, which is how they're able to get so many things done. They're very fast and they tend to know how kind of what's the best way to achieve all of my goals and what are what to prioritize and how to manage time in a way that makes it seem like the rest of us are living in a black hole because of how much they can produce and what they can get done. And they're really used to being able to get what they want relatively quickly. So just based on how hard they are able to work, their kind of inner narrative is like, if I work hard enough, I can have the thing. So it tends to be a source of frustration for threes when that is not the case or when there's too many obstacles or when there's a situation where they can't get the thing that they want and it's out of their control. The other thing that tends to be really stressful for threes is people interacting with people who can kind of see through them. Threes are very charming and very charismatic and they're used to that charm and that charisma getting them a lot of what they want. And so when they're interacting with someone who kind of sees through that or wants to push them to a little bit of a deeper level, that can also bring up a good bit of frustration and feel kind of stressful for them. And along those same lines, I'm going to kind of loop this in, would be making a mistake or having some kind of show of a lack of competence in front of people that they want to craft an image of competence around. So any kind of show of vulnerability or making a mistake or just doing something that doesn't seem like it goes along with the image that they're trying to craft can be really stressful for threes. Mm -hmm. It brings up a lot of shame when those instances happen. And I think for, for threes are a type that's trying to not feel shame or they're trying to avoid that feeling on a regular basis. And so when they are, when they are feeling it, it's pretty, it's incredibly stressful. (laughs) And they try to do a lot of things to get themselves out of that feeling. Like they don't want to stay there. And so for threes, kind of things that will help them both to de-stress and to work through the work of their type, practicing vulnerability and authenticity is huge for threes. They're a type who's sort of walking around trying to cultivate the way that others see them. They're cultivating an image uh, for themselves. And it means that they they do some self-abandonment where they aren't always in touch with who it is that they really are. And, and they're not always doing the things that they really want to do because it brings them joy or pleasure. They're doing things for, for accolades or for, you know, the achievement of it, or this is what's going to give me worth. Um, and so when they can give themselves the opportunity to be authentic with their full selves, everything that they're feeling and to not push that away um, and to show up in the room and just be themselves, they actually learn like, oh, like people like me when I'm just being myself. Like maybe I don't have to be performing all the time and maybe I don't have to be 
achieving all the time. Because remember that this type doesn't feel worthy if they're not seen as being successful or if they're not achieving. And so this is a very hard self-care tip for threes, but it is probably the best self-care tip for them is to lean into authenticity. Sort of a more, a more simple one to do is when any activity that they're pouring energy into, because threes give 110% to whatever it is that they're pouring their energy into, to really take a deep breath, sit back and examine your motivations. Is this something that I really is life-giving to me and is nourishing me something that I really want to do because it's bringing me joy or happiness? Or is this something, is this just a, a, another achievement that, I, that I'm chasing? Um, and so really being able to examine those motivations um, is going to be key, I think, to just creating a life that is a little less stressful in general. And I think the biggest de-stressing tip for threes is to slow down. Threes are, like Monica said, are doing a thousand things at once. Like they are efficiency machines. And so they could really produce a lot of content or a lot of output uh, with whatever they're doing, whether it's work or hobby or, you know, whatever it is. And it's part of that constant go, 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 and running, running at full speed that is exhausting to them. Threes, they often don't hit a roadblock because the fixation itself is so rewarding. They often don't hit a roadblock until they get injured. Like I know so many threes that like, you know, they, they are working so hard that they have like stress injuries in their bodies because they keep doing this thing over and over again, or they don't relax enough to allow injuries to heal. And so they just get worse over time. Um, and so a lot of times it does take a physical injury to be a wake up call for threes. And so that, that self-care tip of slowing down is so important and it might not seem like self-care because slowing down is going to bring up some anxiety and it's going to bring up all the feelings, but really that is the work that threes need to do to be able to get in better touch with themselves and, and to de-stress their lives in general. Interestingly, I'm definitely a three wing on my four. Like I am full in everything. Let's go, go, go. But I don't have any issue with then being very feeling everything. Would you say your spirit animal is though? Sloth. Yeah. So in terms of slowing down, you do that really well. I do. But that's, that's <laughs> what I mean. I have two speeds. I'm either like, full on busy into everything for recognition fully for wanting people to like me for what I do or I am out of the world in my own emotions like down and the two extremes are exhausting at their when they're at their worst mm -hmm. yeah I relate I relate to that a lot Sarah I think I feel that way too as a four those two sort of separate modes mm -hmm. yeah it is exhausting <laughs> Hannah and I both have a three wing. And so we joke all the time about our podcast and like everything we produce. And we're like, this brought to you by our three wings. <laughs> without our three wings, like none of this would happen. We would just sit at home and be feel our feelings. <laughs> I mean, our, our podcast is purely down to Becca needing to feel productive during lockdown. Like that's literally, she needed a project. This is what came about. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, totally awesome. So, how about fours? Hannah and Sarah's number. Mm, diving into the fours. So, 
so type four is called the individualist or the um, or the artist, sometimes called the romantic. And they're a type that is very much in their feelings most of the time. This personality type, they do what's called over-identifying with their feelings. And so it means that your feeling isn't just an experience that you experience and then it floats away from you. <laughs> like, oh, I'm angry. And then that kind of, I feel it for a little bit and then it floats away. And it's sort of for fours like, no, I am angry. And they like sit in it and they absorb it. And so this is a very, a very emotional type. And they're, they're called the creative or the individualist because they have this attachment to being unique and to being special. And so fours are, uh, have the core emotion of shame as well. And they sort of take that feeling of I'm not good enough and I'm not, I'm not worthy just the way that I am. They kind of take that and then they say, like, I'm going to try to make myself special. I'm going to make myself different in some way. Um, and then maybe I'll be worthy of love. Fours are kind of walking around feeling alone and feeling disconnected from other people around them. It's kind of like, like everyone else is in this inner circle of love and fours are kicked out of that. And like, they're not even, you know, they're not even allowed to go in. It's like this, like other people have this stuff that I want and this love and connection and I don't have it and I'm not capable of it. And so it's a really, it's a really hard, this is a very, I mean, all the types struggle with their different things and um, that this is sort of the, the heart of four and, and part of what, what stresses them out fours are like any time that they are perceived to be normal or to be boring or like in the mundane of things, um, say, you know, say it's like someone else perceives that of them or they themselves just perceive it. Um, that's a really big stress trigger for fours because it goes against this like the fixation and the story of four that's saying I am worthy if I'm special and different. Um, you're not special and different if you're stuck in the boring main, you know, mundane schedule and routine that like everyone else is. And so that's a really, really big stress trigger for them. I'll also say that fours, fours can really struggle to find motivation or to find the right mood to do all of the things that they need to do. And they often, um, I don't think I know a single four that doesn't procrastinate on projects um, and that doesn't like struggle with time management in some way. And so fours, a lot of times, like they tend to run late to things. Um, I'm doing better personally than I used to, um, but I'm still like, it's still, I have to be very intentional about being on time. So for, for living from like having that natural part of your personality does create a lot of stress of just living your normal life. Like if you're out running late all the time, it's really stressful. And so I think like anything that sort of requires that fours get more structured or get, get more kind of get to it and get action oriented can be really difficult for fours and definitely can create stress. I'll also add that being a, a type that is very, very in tune with aesthetics and very in tune with the mood and the environment that is around them. When fours are in an environment that doesn't feel pleasing to them or doesn't feel beautiful or like uh, comfortable, 
they have a really hard time relaxing. It like stresses them out. Fours have this perspective or this like filter that they're looking through where they can see what's missing. And in the environment, like if things aren't clean the right way or you're in an ugly environment or something like that, it's like this filter of seeing what's missing. It could be the clothes that you're wearing. If you don't feel like you're putting, you know, the right outfit together or something that, that really is in tune with your mood and what you want that day, like it, it's, it's stressful and it feels hard to relax. Yeah. So for fours around self-care, something that's really important for fours is around taking action. So even because of the over-identification with feeling, a lot of times it's like, it feels inauthentic to fours to take action when they don't feel like it. So if I'm sad or I, I'm not feeling great, it feels like I'm being fake if I kind of put on a happy face and go do something. The problem with that is that then you deny yourself the experience of taking that step and deny yourself the potential for that feeling to shift. It's like I'm, I'm staying in the feeling and by staying in inaction, then I get to keep this feeling instead of taking an action and moving forward. So we, we talk about for fours, like take an action that is kind to yourself, but that isn't necessarily authentic to your mood. So like if I'm feeling really down and I want to lay in bed all day, that's really different than getting up and going for a walk, right? Maybe I let myself lay in bed for an hour and then I, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to go, go for a walk so that I can experience my feeling fully, but I don't have to get stuck there. It's not a place where I have to choose to live. It's not an apartment that I just decide to move into, right? It's like a, it's a temporary space where I go, I experience it fully and deeply. And then I, I take an action and move forward. And that is really good for fours. I also think that the experience of looking for connection and looking for places where you are similar to other people can be a really helpful thing for fours to do because it challenges the narrative that you're alone. You know, in order to be special, we also have to be alone in a sense, right? Like part of the isolation is that I'm special. And so finding those places to connect, finding those places where you are like other people can be really challenging for fours, but it is so good for them. It is like medicine to know that you're not alone. And then the last piece for kind of self-care for fours is to practice developing your skills of observation without judgment. So fours do this kind of compare thing to other people where they're always kind of looking at themselves as compared to other people and seeing themselves in kind of a one-up position or in a one-down position. And this constant comparison really takes them out of the having kind of an observer mind to use a little bit of DBT language, like a mind where I'm looking at things as they are instead of placing value on them. So really practicing just observing what is and even maybe practicing orienting towards things that are, that are beautiful. So kind of changing the way that you orient uh, would be some self-care tips for four. 
Yeah. So for type five, uh, type five is called the investigator or the observer. And type five is a, is a personality type that is always sort of, they're a bit quiet. Um, they tend to be very observant of um, what's going on in the world around them. They tend to be very intellectually driven to, to a point where they're almost always living up in their heads. They're very prone to analyzing things and to absorbing all of the information um, that they have available to them. And so, so this is a person who, like type fives, they love to do a deep dive into subject matters. And they often do become experts in whatever the thing is that they're interested in or that they're passionate about. Um, because there's this consistent consuming of, of knowledge. Type fives are known for, like, I feel like a lot of like professors that I've had in college were type fives. Um, and the friends that I have that are type fives, um, they tend to have this like, this like little secret hobby or something that they do where they might not be telling you a whole lot about it, but if they, but then you ask them about it and then turns out they've been studying mushrooms for five years and they're actually like an amateur expert at it with all the information and you're talking to them and it's like whoa you have you're like the smartest person in the room and you have all this amazing stuff and so they but they might not be sharing that information with others very readily um fives have fives are kind of carrying this idea that um they are incompetent and that they don't have enough resources to show up to life and and to show up to everything that life requires of them. Um, I kind of think of it as like if scarcity mindset were a person, this is, this is how it manifests with type five. And so things that tend to stress this type out, people needing things from them, people asking for favors or when people are asking them to kind of go out of their way to, to do something. Um, this is not a type that, that likes a lot of spontaneity. This isn't a type that, that really enjoys being flexible. They can be flexible and they will, but they have like a, a way that they like to do things in a way, like a standard, like they like to figure out kind of how to do their job or how to do this project. And then they want to keep doing it that way. And if, if people come in and they try to change that or make suggestions, um, it can feel like it's taking too much energy away from them um, of, of this like very limited resources that they feel that they have. So another thing that can stress them out is, is not having the answer to things. And so this is a type that will do a deep, deep dive into obtaining knowledge. And so a lot of times they do have the answers to things, but when something is so big and is so kind of not necessarily confusing, but like something that they can't quite figure out or put their finger on, that can be a source of stress for them. And certainly when anything is chaotic, when things get really unstructured um, and it seems like there's... I don't, like, it's funny because it's not a crisis that I'm talking about necessarily. It could just be like a party, but for fives, it, it almost can feel like it's an impending crisis or like, like the chaos of things happening around them can be overwhelming and it can be too much. So this type really, the thing that they need to do to kind of help, to help de-stress themselves and to help 
kind of move through that is to, is they really do need a lot of time on their own and a lot of time to sort of de-stress and reevaluate. Um, I think one of the most important things for them is to spend time really doing self-care that's not necessarily related to them, to their like niche or to their knowledge bank. Like basically getting out of their intellect and out of their head and doing activities that get them into their hearts or get them into their bodies. Fives, they, they, they are going up into their heads as a resource because it's almost like it's safer. It's safer up there, but it actually ends up creating a lot more stress for them. They need to dip, they need to dip down into their body and dip down into their, into their feeling. What would you add for that, Monica, for de-stressing tips for five? Yeah. The only thing that I would add is to really examine the story around, I can't do what others do, right? To like be really observant in the areas where they are competent and to really challenge the narrative of like, I'm not as good as other people. I don't have the resources to do what other people do. That's why like the embodiment practice, I think is really important for fives because it allows them to develop a sense of competence in something that isn't intellectual. So it's like, I, I can use my body. I can accomplish that yoga pose. I can, you know, run that 5K or whatever. It's about kind of a sense of mastery, which then leads to an increased sense of agency. You ready to move on to type six? Yeah. Cool. So type six is called the skeptic, also called the loyalist, also called the devil's advocate. And type six is complicated because they are a type that operates on this spectrum from phobic, meaning like very familiar with their fear, to counterphobic, where they are very unconscious of their fear. But a lot of their behaviors are motivated by fear in some capacity. And type six tend to be, have a lot of like push-pull relationships in different ways, like a push-pull relationship with authority and a push-pull relationship with trust. They really like to have a lot of information and they like to know kind of what the rules are, not because they want to follow them, but because the structure helps them feel safe. This is a type that is very connected to safety and about how to make things more and more increasingly safe in some in some way. So things that when Hannah and I were making a list of like what is stressful for the types when we got to 6 we were like um everything. <laughs> type 6 What is, isn't stressful? Right? Seriously. <laughs> type 6 is like uh, the kind of person that will have like an absolute meltdown about a flat tire. But if the zombie apocalypse comes, they'll know exactly what to do. Like they'll have their like bag packed and know like exactly how to kill the zombies, right? Which is such a, you know, it's such an interesting like paradoxical kind of human. So, but specifically things that would be really stressful for a type six would be things like not having a clear idea of who's the authority or there is a good authority, but they're not trustworthy. And it's very obvious that they're not trustworthy not having a clear set of guidance or guidelines to abide by is really stressful for a six kind of any kind of ambiguity is actually pretty stressful is kind of how I could sum that up. Not having like being able to see loopholes in the structure 
and the leadership not being able to answer to those loopholes creates stress for sixes. Also, just kind of fear of an impending crisis because they really have this inner story that they won't be able to handle it or that they can't handle it in some way, even though sixes are actually really awesome at crisis. But they spend a lot of mental energy being afraid of that. And then other things that are stressful for sixes are it's really triggering for them to see abuses of power to see like kind of the little guy being exploited in some way. Sixes are like, they're kind of like your bulldog friend, right? Like they're, they're, they're your friend that like, isn't going to let anybody kind of talk crap to you. And they may not like confront someone directly for you, but they're definitely going to be, when you go home and talk to them about that mean person, they're going to be like totally on your side about it, kind of no matter what, even if you were being a complete jerk, right? Like they're just, uh, they're super loyal people. So, and they really are very conscious of who has power and authority and how is that person using that power and authority. And also just like, other people not following rules is stressful for sixes. So to move on to kind of some self-care pieces for them, we always encourage sixes to get a really clear photographic picture in your mind of a crisis that they handled really well and kind of reference back to that when this kind of, this disaster is going to happen and I'm not going to be able to handle it and it's going to be so bad. So having a very clear reference point of, um, I remember when actually that really scary thing happened and I totally knew what to do and I was great about that. Um, So kind of having a, a reference point that you can go back to. And then also finding something to have faith in for sixes is really big. Trust is such a huge theme and a huge challenge for sixes. So finding, it doesn't have to be a religion or a spiritual figure, but just finding something that you can come back to. It could be, I'm breathing, right? I'm always breathing. And as long as I'm breathing, I'm okay. But just finding something that you can have faith in, right? As long as maybe it's a tree, as long as I can see a tree, but just having something consistent that you can come back to. And then finally, gratitude is so big for sixes. Gratitude does something in our brains where it just allows us to lean in to the things about the world that don't suck. Um, And that's a really good practice for sixes. Anything you want to add there, Han? No, I think that's fantastic. So moving into, into type seven, type seven is called the enthusiast. They're also called the adventurer. And this is a a person who is very upbeat and very energetic. They're often very positive people who believe that if you just have a positive attitude and you look on the bright side of life, that everything will be okay. And a lot of times they're, they're convinced that that truly is the key to happiness. And they will try to convince other people that that's the key to happiness too. But in all reality for this personality, all of that energy that goes into positivity and to doing things all of the time um, and keeping themselves really busy is an avoidance of their own darker feelings and of the more negative feelings. Type sevens fear getting trapped. They have this idea that 
if you feel an emotion too much or you feel something negative too much that you're going to get stuck there um, and you're going to get trapped and you're never, ever going to be able to get out of it. And so you can imagine that there's a lot of avoidance that comes with this, this type avoidance of negative feelings, avoidance of the feeling of shame, avoidance of things that are unpleasant. Um, and so this type is also one that they, they really love to plan. Um, they get a lot of joy out of just like really planning, you know, they might sit down uh, or get really excited about a business that they want to do and then sit down and plan the whole business. And that feels really exciting and really, really, really good to them. But a lot of times when it comes down to actually doing the business and then starting it and doing the humdrum everyday work and all the tedious work of making it happen, that's when the sevens want to bounce and they want to check out because they don't like when things get, when things kind of humdrum and when things get, uh, get into routine and things get tedious and hard. So for them, things that stress them out, anything that is going to make them feel trapped somehow. And that could be a relationship. Um, sevens can really struggle with committing to long-term monogamous relationships because they like being in that relationship can, can bring out a feeling of I'm going to get trapped. So things that take long-term commitment, um, can be a big stress trigger. Um, like I said earlier, things that are not fun, things that require being really tedious and the parts of business and life that none of us want to do. Sevens feel particularly stressed out by that. They also have, I think probably one of their biggest stresses is that when things get too emotional or too like negatively intense, sometimes that could be when things get too serious. Um, and the reason for that is that those situations bring up this feeling in sevens of if I go too far, if I go too deep into this negative emotion, I'm going to get trapped there. So um, things that are helpful for them to de-stress, developing practices that quiet their mind and quiet this like this chatty, I have to go and I have to be positive and I have to just da -da -da -da. like sevens have really fast working minds and they have really fast speaking styles. And so things that quiet them down, whether it's journaling or uh, meditating, like things that, that quiet them down and also can get them in touch with their body. It's really, really good for them. Um, also, I would add for sevens that when you feel an emotion, um, if it's a negative one, um, sevens tend to like feel it. It's like, okay, felt the emotion. I'm sad. Okay, I'm sad. And I moved on. And they sort of like bounce through the emotions um, instead of really sitting with the emotions and dipping into how, you know, how that actually feels. Because it's a story that they tell themselves that they can't handle those big emotions or that they'll get trapped in it because they won't. It's, it's actually the not feeling of emotions that creates them getting trapped in situations that are stressful or unpleasant. Yeah, we were talking about sevens before we did this podcast with you guys. And we were talking about how their energy is kind of like a wriggly little puppy that you like really want to cuddle with, but the puppy is just like, yeah, I want to play. Right. And so you're like trying to snuggle with this puppy, but it's just like, <laughs> and sevens. Uh, yeah, that can be a big, a big challenge for sevens. And so anything that's going to like encourage relaxation, encourage being still is really, and reflection, encouraging reflection is really good for sevens. Yeah. <laughs> so type eight, 
So for type eight, type eight is called the challenger, also called the boss. And type eights tend to have a big, intense energy. They tend to be pretty intense people who are really not afraid of much. And they really can also really hard workers, like really great leaders, very powerful people who often have this really amazing sense of justice and really don't have any kind of qualms about standing up for what's right. These are folks that like really don't care if you like them, which is really cool about eights. And so something that's interesting about talking about stress with eight is that in order for someone to be stressed, they'd have to admit that they were stressed, which would go against kind of a big story that eights have that nothing can touch them, right? Eights oftentimes, and I like to talk about childhood a little bit with eight because in childhood, eights often had to be really tough. They had to, something happened in their life where they just had to develop this attitude that like they got this and they don't need anyone or anything to kind of help them through it. So things that are stressful for eights are things that challenge that story. It's moments where there are holes poked in the idea that maybe they do need someone. Maybe they do have a feeling. Maybe they are actually stressed. So examples of that might look like not being in charge and really having a good idea that the person in charge kind of sucks at being in charge, that they're like not doing a good job and really wanting to protect other people from the bad job that the person in authority is doing. That can be a really stressful situation for an eight. Also, anytime the focus gets on them, but it's in a really vulnerable way, that can feel really stressful. And kind of eights have a really good kind of BS reader and calling it out. But one of the the thing about eight is that they would really have to trust you to be like, I'm stressed about blah, 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 blah. More likely what you would hear from them is this person's doing this to me and you're doing that and this is bad, right? You'd hear kind of this blame train. So it's hard to identify like what's actually stressful for eight, but we do have some self-care tips for them, which is to kind of sit in anger for long enough to let the tender piece reveal itself. So eights kind of want to bust, they, they want to take their anger and expel it outward and kind of bust through it, which doesn't allow them the awareness of what's kind of lurking underneath. So sitting with anger, learning about vulnerability, getting really honest about their feelings and communicating tender feelings, regardless of whether they think the other person can handle it or not. Eights tend to kind of dial back the way that they communicate because they're worried that the other person can't handle it. And there's a lot of like, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a good time or they're not going to do anything about it anyway. So I just won't say anything. And so kind of being honest and forthright about those tender feelings, regardless of how the other person is going to receive it and trusting that other people can handle stuff and that you don't have to do it all on your own. Yeah. So that's what we'll say for eight. Yeah. So, so for type nine, this is our last type. They're called the mediator or the peacemaker. And type nines are folks that 
desire for everything around them to kind of be even keeled, everything to kind of be in harmony. They, they have a strong dislike of conflict and at times will avoid it at all costs. Nines are avoiding both the intensity of conflict and they're avoiding the feeling of anger. And so you can imagine that for, for this type, I mean, one of the things that stresses them out the most is when there is conflict or when, when there is a situation that is intense that they can't kind of get out of or that, that they can't uh, neutralize. And when I say intense, it could be that it's really intense emotionally. Say like they're in a group of people and it, emotion is really sad and it's really down. Nines are going to kind of want to bring people back up out of that. Um, but say that everyone's really excited and it's really, um, really like uh, fast energy. Nines are going to kind of want to calm that down. And so there's just this like balancing act that happens with them. Nines can really struggle to know what their opinion is and to really know know what it is that they want and who they are. Part of that is that they have these incredibly like big brains that, that can truly see so many different perspectives um, at once. It's like you're talking to a nine and you're telling them about your problem or your thing. Like they're really with you and they're like, oh yeah, like I can totally see that. And I totally get that. And then they can talk to your friend or partner, the person you were having the argument with. <laughs> and then they hear their perspective and they're like, oh yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. You're, I think you're right. So, so it's like they can understand others and their perspective so well, they kind of adopt it, but then they have a hard time actually listening to their own voice in all of that. It's almost like they get overpowered by other people's energy and other people's opinions and other people's agendas. So for type nine, things that, that can be stressful for them is when someone demands that they give them an opinion <laughs> or someone says like, I need you to make a choice on this, or I need to know what you think. That can be a really stressful thing for nines, especially if there's a conflict involved already. And especially if they see multiple sides of something and they feel like they can't really find a medium road in it. Other things that, that stress them out are nines when they're avoiding intensity and avoiding conflict. They do that a lot by numbing themselves out and by sort of you know, we say that nines have a cozy corner in their homes and they have like their favorite TV shows and their favorite book and probably a couple electronic devices, snacks, like they sort of go into this little, this little cozy corner where they try to disconnect from themselves and from the world. And ultimately what ends up happening, it kind of starts out as self-care because they, they need that, they need to disconnect, but then it ends in numbing. It's something that actually serves to further disconnect them from themselves. What would you add to that, Monica, about, about stresses for type nine? Yeah, I mean, really just anything that is super intense. Nines are, it's so funny because like eights are like the home of intensity, but nine is like running away as fast as they can from that intensity. So anything that kind of lights a fire. Anger in general is just really stressful for them. Somebody being mad at them, them being mad at somebody, uh, kind of a terse 
interaction is really difficult. Yeah, being kind of forced to show up in a different way is hard for them giving feedback, getting feedback, like kind of anything that inspires intensity is pretty difficult for nines. So actually for self-care for nines, we like to tell nines to practice having a preference. We, when we do one of our trainings, we do this uh, kind of experiential exercise where we do a this or that kind of game where you have to pick something, but there's like relational consequences for the thing that you pick. And nines are, I know nines are so challenged by that. They really have a hard time picking something when there's a potential consequence that involves conflict or the other, it impacting the other person in some way. And Something that I think is kind of little known or little talked about about nines is that part of the reason for that is not just running away from intensity, but this huge capacity for empathy that nines have, Um, just huge. It's like they have a limitless container of empathy, which is a real asset, but it's also a real challenge because it sometimes that empathy for the other person cuts them off from themselves. So getting in touch with self, um, anything, anything that encourages self-reflection for nines is really good. Learning about themselves is really good. The Enneagram is super good for nines uh, and all the types for nines, especially. Yeah. And nines are going to hate this, but learning how to sit with anger. We are humans and we all feel anger. Nines might try to tell you that that's not true or that they don't feel anger. Um, They do. It's just really suppressed if they're not feeling it. And so being able to learn how to sit with anger and giving themselves permission that it's okay for them to take up that much space and for them to be that present because there's nothing more, there's nothing bigger and like more present than anger. It's like an emotion that says, see me and like, hear me. And that's the thing that nines are struggling with. And so being able to sit with that, give themselves permission to be there is really, really powerful um, self-care work for them. And being able to um, say no to things and communicate those boundaries really clearly or, or communicate those needs clearly. Nines, a lot of times if you ask them like to have an opinion on something or like what it is that they want. Um, sometimes they don't, they might have a preference, but they don't tell you that preference, but they, they still wanted it. And so they can get in kind of a rut of some like stubbornness <laughs> when it comes to not clearly communicating what they want, um, but still kind of passively, stubbornly, like not complying with the thing that the other person said that they wanted. So yeah, yeah, I think that's about it. Wow. Oh, I- I love honestly you guys are incredible how you've encapsulated that and like I just I'm gonna listen to it over and over again anytime someone goes what are you talking about and be like listen to this yeah guys thank you so much for that that was just so incredibly informative powerful I know that both Sarah and me obviously our listeners can't see um, our videos but we were both tearing up at points and very, like nodding along really nodding along um, when you guys were describing us or people that we know really well so I think people will find that so helpful so thank you so much can you just say a little bit about Empowered Enneagram where people can find you and if people want to find out more and discover a bit about what their number might be um, where would you suggest that they start with that? 
Yeah, for sure. So we do have a website. It's www.empoweredenneagram.com. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook at Empowered Enneagram. And if you like a podcast, we have our own podcast where we teach and we definitely give the milk away for free. So uh, if you want to look for us, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. I think we're on a couple other platforms, but the podcast is just called Empowered Enneagram. So you can search that. And then if you want to learn more about your type, definitely get in touch with us because we do live workshops. Most of them are virtual at this time. So even if you're across the planet, you can attend one of our workshops. We've got a cool one coming up called Enneagram and Relationships. That's going to be super juicy. Um, and we also have coaching curriculum for folks who maybe you know your number or you want to find out your number, but you have some kind of goals associated with how you want to grow using the Enneagram. That's another way. And then uh, we also, the last thing that we do, is organizational consulting. So if you hate your coworkers, come talk to us because we will help you. Or if your team is severely lacking in leadership, uh, we also do consulting for corporations and businesses on how to use the Enneagram to make your team the bestest team ever. So you can make the most dollars or you can make the biggest impact or whatever. The most pounds. That's right. The most yeah. pounds. Yeah. <laughs> It's been such an honor, you guys. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank oh, you. Honestly, we're so grateful. Yeah. Thank you, guys. All right. Wonderful. Take good care. Bye. Thank you for listening to A Drop in the Bucket. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Drop in the Bucket Pod or Twitter at Drop Bucket Pod. Alternatively, you could email us on Drop in the Bucket Pod at gmail.com. It would be great to hear from some of you about what fills and empties your bucket or any questions that you might have for us or our future guests.